This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Facebook, Google, Netflix, and even Amazon, pretty peripheral names 20 years ago, but since then they've upended our oldest and biggest news businesses. But where is all this heading? We ask an expert who's been tracking the dominance of the big tech platforms for years and our media's dependence upon them. And we hear from a departing veteran reporter who was no media star, but certainly a stalwart of journalism. Todd Nile tells us why coverage of local matters really matters. But first, protest, pomp and ceremony, but no honeymoon. The new parliament is underway and the new government as well. A dignified and grand state opening of parliament. The Governor-General declaring it's open for business, laying out the government's plan for the next three years. That was TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay kicking off TVNZ One News on Wednesday. And while the ceremonial stuff may have been dignified, Jessica Much Mackay said it didn't last long once the MPs cracked into it in the House. Indeed, in the first sitting of the new parliament just the day before, well, there was a bit of a dignity deficit there too, evident in this mashup on News Hub at 6 that night. I actually think it's narcissism. Uh, it's all about them when everyone else can be respectful of the institution that they have worked hard to be elected to. But I did notice that after all the theatrics, uh, they still swore allegiance and signed up to make sure they get paid. So he called it performative narcissism. Yeah. Do, do you agree with that? No, he can go jump in the lake. If, if it was about us, I love living rent-free in his mind and um, it will continue to... Preposterous that the Māori Party should think that they are the authentic voice for Māori New Zealanders. I remind everyone again, that party got less than 3% of the vote and a lot of their party voters were not Māori. A lot of them were hippies. And there was no one there evidently to hit back for the poor old hippies. News Hub called that a taste of the political theatre we can all expect for the next three years. And the Herald's Audrey Young said, the honeymoon is over. But was there one at all for this new government? I took a look at all that on this week's Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Mark Leishman last Wednesday. And while we were at it, we talked about the current affairs show The Project coming to an end last week after seven years on screen, Sky TV putting up prices again, and whether old-fashioned letters to the editor are on the way out. If you missed it, Midweek Media Watch is on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, in his first speech as Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters on Wednesday had another go at the media after the speech from the throne. He cited Elvis Presley, if you're looking for trouble, and then the Phil Collins tune, Both Sides of the Story, when he complained that journalists hadn't attended and reported his election campaign meetings. Stuff's live blog from the House noted that Mr Peters also complained that the media never printed a word about the not guilty outcome in the trial of two men in 2020 who were accused by the Serious Fraud Office of fraudulently depositing money into the New Zealand First Foundation's bank account. But you can read Stuff's coverage of the verdict here, the live blog added straight away after that, helpfully highlighting the link, proving Mr Peters wrong about that. Now, as we heard in Media Watch last weekend, News Hub's Jenna Lynch also accused Winston Peters of conduct unbecoming a Deputy Prime Minister for his claims that the Public Interest Journalism Fund, launched by the former government, was an instrument of media bribery. Outlandishly and incorrectly claiming the government had, quote, bribed the media through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. You can't defend $55 million of bribery. Repeating for effect. No, 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 you cannot defend $55 million of bribery. 
and that chimed with the views of the previous Minister of Broadcasting, Willie Jackson. But long before the election, Willie Jackson had confirmed that Labour wouldn't be repeating or renewing the fund if they won. Now, one big reason why would be the long, loud backlash from those who reckoned that the fund did skew news coverage, even though it didn't, but Willie Jackson told a pre-election meeting about media policy that he reckoned the media didn't even need a cash injection on this scale anyway, because another of his government's interventions would provide the Fair Digital News Bargaining Bill, a law change to force online operators like Google and Facebook to pay the media here for the news that they've distributed for years for free. We've got half the journalists that we had now than we had 10 years ago. Huge amount of good journos who've all gone out the door, all gone out the door because these big companies come in, take everything and don't give anything back. If we get this bill through, we'll get a couple of hundred million bucks coming back into the into the market and I think it will help us in terms of sustaining jobs and everything else. $200 million is a very optimistic or maybe even heroic estimate of the revenue that such bargaining might get. That's roughly how much the deals struck with Google and Meta in Australia are estimated to have netted annually, and that's in a media market that's many times larger than ours. But while it did bring big money into the media there, it's been a different story so far in Canada, which the Labour Party also looked to for guidance when writing its bill. Canada's Online News Act, also called Bill C-18, prompted Google to threaten to remove Canadian news from their services last year, and Facebook and Instagram's parent Meta actually did that. This page you see now, mostly full of Canadian outlets about this very story, none of them would show up once the company makes its move. However, last week Google did agree to pay a single collective which would then distribute the funds to the eligible news media agencies based on the number of full-time journalists they employ. And Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said all this was very good news. After months of holding strong, of demonstrating that our commitment to local journalism, to strong independent journalists getting paid for their work, Google has agreed uh, to properly support journalists, including local journalism. Uh, This is a a deal, an agreement uh, that is going to resonate around the world as countries and democracies struggling with the same challenges that our media landscape in Canada is facing with uh, are going to look at this and we're very pleased we were there. Unfortunately, Meta continues to completely abdicate any responsibility towards uh, democratic institutions and even stability, uh, but we're going to continue to work positively in, in those areas. The BBC has estimated that Canadian media might get 400 million New Zealand dollars a year from this, and that's without Meta and others coming to the party. But others in the media are warning that all this means that media might end up being dependent for their income on tech companies that really don't care about them, or in some cases are actively hostile to them. Five years ago, Dr Maria Mililati from the AUT School of Communication Studies warned that New Zealand media outlets had become dangerously dependent on Facebook and Google for their online traffic. Her study, The Problem of Platform Dependency, showed that the online platform's share of digital ad revenues was growing fast, but news organisations here didn't make any substantial revenue from them. She told MediaWatch at the time that news publishers should pull out of Facebook here and Facebook and Google should pay a tax to ensure that New Zealand journalism survives in the digital world. Well, five years later, the outgoing Labour government left a bill before Parliament that would do just that, 
But the incoming government has signalled it's not keen, in its words, to tax tech companies. And Maria Milanati has revisited the relationship between our local media and big tech in a new book called From Paper to Platform. Now this says that local news organisations which continue to do business using the social media companies and search engines are at the mercy of them and they could change their services at will, not in ways that are good for our media. Instagram's new Threads app, she says, has no appetite for hard news. While Google's search results are offering less news these days, and X, formerly Twitter, has stopped showing news headlines and links on tweets. Meanwhile, Facebook continues to tweak its algorithm, often to promote non-news stuff and suppress real news, in ways that are incremental to the company and its users, but damaging and sometimes devastating to online news operations. This week I asked Dr. Maria Milalati if the dependency which was a danger five years ago is still now, and if so, what should our media do about it? If you think that you know Google and Facebook and uh, especially you know these two uh, have become the major funders of the the news, and then they also are funding journalism programs, journalism in it initiatives. The risks are increasing, not decreasing. And the one big thing, of course, is the visibility of the news. And quite rapidly, it's uh, disappearing. The news is disappearing from these platforms. Yeah, you also said um, back then, uh, you said, I'm no tax expert, but either <laughs> uh, they should be levied or taxed, or they should be voluntarily paying something from their ad revenue <laughs> to public interest journalism. After years of not doing a great deal, uh, the Labour-led government uh, did actually put forward a bill. doesn't look like the national government that's incoming is all that keen on it. Do you think that bill was a good idea and should progress? Well, it's a bit tricky uh, in the way that, you know, okay, in Australia it has worked to a certain extent. Uh, at the moment we have a situation in Canada, actually, Google um, agreed to pay their news, but they're paying about half of the money that uh, the government was uh, seeking from them. I argue that it's not a a long-term solution and the platforms are there not for the long term. And uh, Meta is already pulling out of the news funding in the US, so so I think it can't be the long-term strategy. But in the meantime, though, should... New Zealand get on board with this and the government accept that, you know, it's happening all around the world that the, the platforms have accepted whether they've been coerced into it, they now pay for news. Well, we need some framework but, you know, what happened in Canada, I go back to Canada because that's so fresh. Uh, so uh, in Canada, Google, when they agreed to the, uh, the to pay for the news, uh, they they can opt out now from the law. If that's the case in Canada, what happens in New Zealand? Would that be the same thing? You know, Google has already made uh, deals with the 47, I think, publishers. So I'm I'm just wondering what that achieves. And Meta will not come to the table. Uh, They are not on the table in Canada either. We need to look closely what's going on in Canada. There's a a stat in your new book uh, that says this is dating back to January 2022. 35% of people using Facebook and social media for news. In one sense, you know, that's enormous. But in your mind, should we be surprised that it's not higher? Uh, 35%, I think it's quite high. When the news starts to lose the visibility in the Facebook and they have been downgrading uh, news pretty much on their platforms, same course with their new Twitter competitor. So they say that hard news is not, uh, they don't care about hard news. So the visibility uh, of that verified journalistically produced content is disappearing and that worries me. But the statistics is uh, for 35% of people, their main reason for using social media is 
to read news stories. That's huge. So why, why is it then that the platforms have been um, ambivalent, you know, Meta in particular, you know, tweaking their algorithm, as we know in the past, with um, disastrous consequences for the traffic for news organisations? They they put the content and prioritise the content which creates for uh, more clicks for them and more advertisement uh, for them. The the platforms are there for the business. They are not for the news business, if you know what I mean. And five years ago when you first um, wrote about New Zealand uh, media organisations becoming dependent, a lot of the debate was about whether these companies should be considered to have editorial responsibilities. A line in um, your new book from Paper to Platform says uh, Facebook has started to accept it, it is a publisher. Why have they come to accept that? If we just say that they are the postmen and they're just delivering this content and they are just distribution channels, you take away that responsibility of the content they publish. And as we know, there's still a lot of you know harmful content uh, spreading on the uh, platform. So we need to think them as the publishers. And if you look at the New Zealand law and uh, legal uh, you know definition for the, what is a publisher, Facebook, for example, fulfills three out of four of those things. So uh, we need to think uh, them as a publicist. But is the attitude changing within the company and perhaps within other platforms too? Have they started to realise over the years uh, that it's it's not possible to, for them to hold this line of they're just the postman, not the um, the publisher? Well, I think it's, it's constantly being tested now. And, you know, the, for example, in Australia, there were defamation cases. And, you know, they, uh, are, are they going to be um, um, responsible for the content is, which is published there? And the in Australia, High Court has actually found Google was responsible for one defamation case. So... No, the platforms don't accept that they are they are publishers because they don't want to take that responsibility of the content they publish. Yeah. Again, I think you were saying similar things five years ago. Uh, that our media companies here need to make sure they're not dependent on these platforms uh, for either for revenue or for audience. But that's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, we saw, say, when the push came to shove over something like the COVID crisis. You know, government with a huge budget needs to get messages out. That was one of the major avenues for it. Facebook, social media, that's just where the people are. I mean, hard thing to say to media, plan for the future without these things, because at the moment, that's where people are spending their time. Yes, I know that. Uh, and it's uh, to a certain extent, it's true. But I don't believe that, you know, Google and uh, Facebook will be paying for news for a long time. And if you think that, you know, what is the consequence of, for example, leaving the platform, think about stuff, um, for example, when they left Facebook and they said that, OK, we estimated that we our traffic will drop about 20 percent. And then they said nothing happened. And uh, NPR uh, had a similar kind of experience at the U.S. Uh, public broadcaster. The traffic hardly had any impact. Uh, stuff has also left recently uh, X, as you know. Uh, let's see what happens with that. So they are already withdrawing. A lot of these news companies are already leaving the platforms. They have to have multiple revenue sources and maybe the platforms have a role there and maybe the government has a role there, but it has to be multiple sources. It can't be uh, platform dependent because we can see that they can destroy the business models of the news outlets. Just look what happened uh, for the bus feed and vice. Where you say um, the platforms still resist 
this notion of having the responsibility of a publisher and prefer to be known just as the postman, the delivery mechanism. Uh, you use the term patrons. You say they're now patrons of journalism and news. Um, I mean, partly that's because, you know, they have initiatives, they um, do training, they offer free tools like data visualisation and so on. But what should they do then to show genuine good faith if this dependency that you've outlined still exists and still is a risk for our news media? Well, first... Perhaps they should stop downgrading the news in their services. So they should become like a socially responsible citizens, you know, and promote that, you know, verified uh, uh, content. Well, in a way, they do that, though, don't they, through things like the Google News Showcase, for example. They deal with recognised news publishers, large and small, pay them some money for it. And that's, you know, a, a place on Google, one platform, for example, where they have sourced, identified, trustworthy, reliable news and put it in a service for people to find. They have done, but I'm, I'm looking for, uh, you know, ahead and um, what is happening at the moment. You know, the, for example, Google, uh, when they tweaked uh, recently the search functions in the UK, the visibility of the news outlets dropped like 30 to 40 percent. Every time they do something which suits their strategy, it can harm the news. And as the patrons, they also have that power to <laughs> either you know, continue to support the journalism or withdraw that when they want. So there's a power imbalance there. So, so for example, the, the Westport News, a uh, little small local newspaper, it's been in print for more than 150 years. In fact, it's just celebrated that milestone. They're shortly are going to introduce an app because they've put up their own online paywall, even for their, you know, pretty small audience and that has been done with the assistance of um, the Google News initiative so I mean that that's you would you say that's a good thing or is this an example of the sort of patronage you talk about which ends up being a kind of dependency you know that the Westport News wouldn't be able to do it without the generosity of Google some of the publishers I was uh, I was interviewing for a book said that you know the the Google has done more for them than any government or any other organization. So surely for some news organization, some you know good has been created. And and uh, but in the long term, I argue that that their revenue and their business models can't be dependent on that Google funding, like you know the Google payments. One of the major problems that media has with the platforms is. The, the algorithm, the way it works, and the fact that it can promote or uh, kind of bury their content. There was a lot of paranoia, perhaps, about this, even five years ago when you started raising the issue of platform dependency, uh, because it made the companies look secretive, um, because, you know, it was basically a trade secret how the algorithms worked. Is that something that we can expect to see in the future that if they want to keep their privileged place in, in the market, they're going to have to reveal how those algorithms really work? Yeah, it's that's the ambition and that's the aim, of course, that we would know. And maybe they open up that uh, a little bit more, but I'm not sure that because it's a competitive thing for them. Also, remember that, you know, what is going to muddle the picture is the AI and chatbots and, you know, whole, which is creating whole uh, new kind of set of problems and challenges. And I, I'm not terribly optimistic because the transparency is not the best uh, feature. But in your book, you do uh, outline some of the things that uh, some of the biggest platforms, such as Facebook, have done to appear a little less opaque down the years. Um, for example, they're publishing all their terms and conditions, um, but also uh, things like an oversight board 
uh, for Facebook, and they've had to front up uh, probably against their will, but to various you know congressional inquiries in in the US and parliamentary ones in the UK. So by and large, are they opening up a little more, and that is something to be welcomed. Uh, perhaps you know we know more about them than we did uh, five years ago. I give you that, but uh, uh, on the other hand. The purpose of them is kind of has always been the good PR and you know also responding to the regulatory pressures. So uh, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. Yes, we know a little bit more, uh, and the editorial boards, etc., like Meta uh, has established. Uh, are, yeah, we can see their decisions, how they are making their decisions. But remember that the editorial board also means that they're closer to a publisher. And in the book, you do say, just finally, um, news businesses are now so integrated into platform services that it's difficult for news companies to differentiate themselves uh, in the media ecosystem. Practically impossible for them to avoid Google, for example. But you say news sites can withdraw from social media platforms. They are counterbalancing this dependence, even circumventing it with new things such as podcasts and newsletters, uh, which are their own, which they control. Is that something we should look for and maybe even encourage in, in, in our media companies. Yeah, I think you know, look at that resilience and build that, you know, together. Uh, I think that's the that's what we need to see that, you know, how do we make that resilience? What kind of, you know, support systems, you know, beyond uh, the the platforms uh, they can build and uh, and then, of course, those revenue models are critical. So, yeah, people go and buy and subscribe to the new services. That was Dr. Maria Mililati, the author of From Paper to Platform, How the Tech Giants Are Redefining News and Democracy, a newly published book by Bridget Williams Books. And you can hear more of what she had to say about all that in the online version of this story. That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website, a section of the RNZ app, or available for free wherever you get your podcasts. It would be easy for my last column after 46 years in daily news to wallow in the past, but the future for Auckland is too important. So said the Auckland Issues reporter for Stuff, Todd Nile, in his last piece as a journalist, published by Stuff last Monday. Auckland can continue to be the country's most important dynamic and diverse city, he said. It just needs to focus on delivering that in the best way for future generations, rather than in an incremental way that avoids challenging the comfort zones of people in my demographic, Todd wrote. Kia kaha tamaki makoto, look ahead, not back, were his very final words. But a day later, Auckland Council debated Mayor Wayne Brown's 10-year budget plan to go out for public consultation. I think he's uh, lecturing anyone on on disrespectful language. Come on. You can't speak to points of order. This is disrespectful. I'll remind the council that he called me a hypocrite in the last meeting. Okay. That is not true. Either. It's on tape. Do you want to see the tape? Will you guys grow up, please? Come on. Councillor Lee, just stop it. And that's probably not the sort of boldness that Todd Nile was hoping for after four and a half decades of journalism, some of it as an RNZ reporter and broadcaster. Now, Todd himself got a pretty bumpy reception in the early days of the drongo-baiting new mayor of Auckland, Wayne Brown. And a Sunday Star Times profile of the mayor last weekend said that Todd Nile managed to get right up Brown's nose with more than a year of cool, measured analysis of the mayor's words and deeds, past and present. 
Stuff's Adam Dudding in that article noted a Mexican wave of praise and reminiscences from councillors recently at the last meeting Niall ever covered. But Brown notably declined to join in the love fest, instead giving a small pained sigh. Uh, if there's a chance we might get back to what we were discussing here. And maybe Todd wouldn't have minded that at all. But even after Todd left RNZ some years ago, he's been frequently used on its programmes for his local knowledge. OK, OK. Are you ready to go? Yep. So, Todd, what is a time-of-use congestion charge? Time-of-use seems to be the new phrasing they use for what we call... That was the detail Sharon Brett Kelly picking Todd Niles' transport brains last month. And seven days later, Todd was back on Nine to Noon with more about Auckland's cars. The sale of the council's biggest public car park building, the downtown car park, 2,000 cars... Uh, across seven floors, pretty much right on the city waterfront, so a prime site. And that slot came and went without any mention that Todd was retiring just two days later. Now, Todd Nile was also an expert in a more glamorous form of transport, yacht racing. He went to five America's Cup regattas and even went at his own expense to the 2017 Challenger Series in Bermuda, where he was annoyed to find that some journalists were inside the Team New Zealand camp courtesy of the sponsors, and even clad in the sponsors' outfits and working with video content owned by the team and the sponsors. And when Todd bumped into the communications manager for the whole event, he pulled out his phone and asked him, are you trying to do away with proper independent journalism? It is incredibly valuable to have media, as I say, asking the questions that perhaps the brands don't want them to. Um, and to try and replace that or to try and say that that is not important in this day and age, frankly, is missing the point. But meanwhile, back in Auckland, before he retired last week, Hayden Donnell sat down with this remarkable reporter on local matters for whom local issues really matter. Kia ora, Todd. Welcome to Media Watch for your valedictory interview. Oh. <laughs> right. The, the last act of a long career going on Media Watch. I've been looking forward to it. First off, you're a veteran local government reporter. Are you leaving the sector in good health? In terms of local government, generally, I think so. I mean, when I, as a reader and a, and a listener and a watcher, I find plenty of good local government coverage from around the country that I find interesting in. You know, the, the goings-on in Gore, that, that never-ending soap opera down there. Um, there's always something going on at Christchurch City Council. There's uh, Tauranga City still in the hands of a commissioner. There's, there's lots of good stuff that I find interesting, you know, wherever there are metropolitan or provincial newspapers, I think local government is still a staple for them. Cast your mind back to when you started how many years ago? Um, 1977. Okay. There was a borough on every corner in Auckland. So there was more coverage back then, surely? Yeah, there was more coverage, but particularly in Auckland with the amalgamation, it's become the scale of the, of the stories and the scale of what's going on is bigger and probably there are now layers <clears throat> that aren't getting covered, the things that are more specific to one part of the city than another that doesn't necessarily suit, you know, media organisations that have a more of a national focus than the, the kind of suburban focus that used to exist, you know. Yeah, that's where we have hollowed out a little bit, right, on those we used to have really quite... Uh, well-staffed suburban papers and North Shore Times, Rodney Times. Mm. Uh, Each had their own newsroom, yeah. had their own staff, had their own editor. No longer. 
No. So the, the, the mastheads, the titles still exist, but they're served out of a, out of a pool of material. But, yeah, that is, you know, not just in Auckland, but that's happening around the country, that that really local level of hyper-local coverage is, is kind of going. I don't know that anyone could now start a newspaper as such with a physical product. I mean, the costs just of printing and producing and, and distributing. There's always this hope that something will come and fill the void at the more local level. I guess it's going to have to be online. But then there's that old online thing of, you know, how do you pay for it? What's one part of council business that you really wish is, was covered more in our media? I think particularly in the cities and, and particularly in Auckland, the, the area that kind of has my focus most of the time is that kind of intersection between climate change policy and transport, because between the two of those, that is the biggest challenge that the city faces. You know, that almost is the existential issue, more so than will the rates be 9% or 8% and that sort of thing. I don't think there could be too much coverage of that area in my view. I hope I'm wrong, but in Auckland particularly, I kind of have the sense that things may be shifting in reverse or at least coasting in neutral rather than the big kind of policy and political commitments that were made, you know, targets were set, we'll halve emissions by 2030, they'll be carbon zero by 2050. And having done all the right things, now that it is time to actually do the stuff, and implement this transport emissions reduction plan, there's almost a majority view, "Mm, yeah, well, there are other things to do and not quite enough money, so let's just, you know, muddle along a bit further. The cumulative impact of the central government change as well and that there might not be such a push from the national level to deal with these things, I think is quite a worrying trend. And that's why I kind of feel that particularly for a a big metropolitan area like Auckland, that is the issue for the next three years or more. Do you think we in the media have failed to convey the reasons for why these plans have been put in place and also what they'll mean for people? I don't think it's a failure of media. I mean, it's stuff that, that, you know, there has been... Uh, a huge push on climate reporting. In general, the steps that Auckland has been going through have been well reported and, you know, the, the, the plans and the targets were all unanimously set. What is missing, I don't think, is the media coverage but the political leadership. If you don't have a mayor, if you don't have that top level of the council explaining to the public why these things need to happen, why we can't move around in that comfortable old way in our cars that we're used to, uh, if it's not a pro- top priority for them, it's never going to become a top priority for Aucklanders. Is there a space? It's not really been your way, but for campaigning media in that space. I think there's a space for campaigning somebody, whether it's whether it's media or or whether it almost feels like a lot of the campaigners for climate, for whatever reason, have have gone quiet. I mean, you, there were those great school strikes, those marches up. Queen Street and the main streets of cities by young people, you know, absolutely demanding action. And, and even that seems to have gone away. I, you know, Organisations like Stuff or The Herald, they're responding to audience signals and what people are clicking on. Should it be the commercial media's uh, job to provide coverage that people aren't interested in? I don't think the debate is, should we do this because nobody's interested? commercial media companies, particularly digital ones nowadays, I I guess the name of the game is you need to have an audience 
as big as possible, an overall audience as big as possible to attract advertisers. So I suppose within that is the discussion, so how do we get that audience? And is it easier to get that audience in this direction rather than that direction? Um, And local government, like most specialist areas of reporting, like education or health, requires a commitment of resources. You know, it needs people to be permanently on it, making relationships, understanding things, you know, being able to figure out how to explain what's going on. And I guess the challenge for media companies is having resources dedicated to one thing when maybe the appeal is also having resources that can move around and do this and that. And Generalists is generalists, the trend. Yeah. Going back a couple of decades, that was the bread and butter of media is, is you know having an area that you worked in and you understood and you developed relationships. And I've had the benefit of being able to do that. Uh, I guess it's harder now for journalists going into the trade perhaps to find an environment where that ability to specialise and focus exists. I don't know that I'd like to be responsible for making those decisions and being responsible for the commercial outcomes. You know, it's easy for me as a journalist to say what it should be. Does it rob media companies of agency somewhat to say, oh, well, people just aren't interested in local government? I mean, the cliche in explaining why local government matters is that in people's daily lives, it's playing a bigger part in their daily life probably than central government. It's a cliche because it's true, Todd. It is true. Almost everything in your daily life is local government. The footpath you walk on, the bus that does or doesn't turn up, the library that may or may not be open when you want it to, the sports facilities. So it does matter, and I think people are interested. Maybe it's not understood. Maybe it's when you get your rates bill as a property owner that you really start to go, hey, I'm paying them all that money. What am I getting for it? Who's running the show? What are they doing? You know, even people who aren't property owners local government matters. Even small stuff like the debate recently in Auckland around Karangahapi Road and taking away 27 car parks that are available on the curbside, sometimes only for part of the day, to enable the buses to go through. It seems like a small thing, but it's part of a bigger picture of changes that we need to make in transport getting around. So it's whether we need to fundamentally change the way that we're setting up our road spaces and and enabling people to get around the city. Are you going to miss it? Yeah, I am. But the great thing about being a journalist is not just the story that you produce, but being able to be inside the goldfish bowl, knowing what else was going on, the stuff that you can't report or shouldn't report. or You know, that is a fascinating part of being a journalist, is being on the inside. And as much as the stories will be interesting to read, I suppose I'll miss that part of it. Slightly different tack, Todd. You're a huge... America's Cup fan, and you actually went to the America's Cup in Bermuda in 2017, and at the time you got in touch with Media Watch to complain that the sponsor Toyota was running all of the media availability at the time. Is that kind of intrusion something that we should be wary of that's happening more and more in media? But at the time, that was an interesting development in sporting coverage. And I I think outside the America's Cup, that has become more so where, in addition to your basic mainstream coverage of an event, uh, a major sponsor wants to have coverage that they can be associated with. Um, So that was quite a jolt, I guess, having covered five other America's Cups before that to find that arriving in the sport. It was the jolt of change, and that change seems to have rolled on through other sports as well, that, you know, sports coverage as well as being 
normal news media fodder also has a value to the sponsors that they want increasingly to get something back from. The gig, you, you, you don't think it'll ever happen in politics and local government? Wow. <laughs> Coverage of the Auckland Council brought to you by... <laughs> they do have their own media outlets, or they used to. Yeah. I don't think so, not in mainstream media. That I don't think any mainstream media company would link politics to commercial coverage. Uh, it's it's different to lifestyle things and, and certain aspects of sport coverage, but no, I don't see a risk there. Thank you very much for joining us for your valedictory interview, Todd Nile. Thank you. That was Todd Nile, formerly a long-serving RNZ reporter and presenter, and more recently the Auckland Issues correspondent for Stuff, until last Thursday when he called it a day after more than 45 years in journalism. Now, while Todd in recent years was dedicated to local issues in Auckland, as he himself said, he was just one part of a big city media machine that was able to keep an eye on things there. But local news and issues in the regions don't always get such a dedicated focus. And recently, many local papers and radio stations have either closed down or slimmed down their newsrooms in the regions. But that doesn't mean that other outlets aren't covering news and issues for their communities. And next week here on Media Watch, Hayden Donnell reports back from Horofenua on who's doing the business at the grass and flax roots there with a small incursion across the border into Kapiti while he was at it. But for this weekend, that's all from us here at Media Watch. We'll be back with more on the media with Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10 next Wednesday on Nights with Mark Leishman and then back again with the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.